Well, I want to invite you now to turn your Bibles to the book of Acts as we continue our study in the book of Acts. We'll be reading from verses 12 through 26. Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. Luke has written this particular letter chronicling the early church, its beginnings. And last time we looked at how the Lord Jesus displayed to them many proofs of his resurrection, verse 3, how he promised the Holy Spirit to them that they would be witnesses for him through the ends of the earth and how they were to take that message and share the good news of the resurrection of the Lord. Our scripture reading begins in verse 12. The text reads, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, that is, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These, all with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about 120 persons were there together, and said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. Now this man according, acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the field, and all his intestines gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem so that in their own language that field was called Hakeldama, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his office. Therefore, it is necessary that the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they put forward two men, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, know the hearts of all men. Show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our God in heaven, we give you thanks for your eternal word. And once again, Father, we ask that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we might see great and wonderful things from thy law. In Jesus' precious name, amen. 
In 2012, there was a film that was made entitled Red Tails. And Red Tails, it was a dramatized version of some true events behind a group of soldiers in World War II. This group of soldiers was called the Tuskegee Airmen. Perhaps you've seen it. Formerly, they belonged to the 332nd Fighter Group and the 477th Bombardier Group of the U.S. Army Air Corps. And the nickname Red Tails came, it was coined because this group painted red on the tail of their aircraft. The Tuskegee Airmen became famous for two reasons. Number one, it was because they were the first African-American military aviators in the U.S. Armed Forces. They hold a special significance in American history, not just racially, but militarily. In the European air war, the U.S. bombers were being shot out of the sky at increasingly alarming rates, and the, the problem was that when the enemy attacked our bombers as they would fly in Europe, the pilots who were accompanying them would chase after those fighters that would come and they would leave the bombers open to attack. Each of the bombers carried a crew of 10 or 11 Americans and they would be shot out of the sky because the current pilots were interested, fighter pilots were interested in increasing their numbers of airplanes that were shot down by them. And so the Tuskegee Airmen, they were brought in, and they were given a different strategy. And their strategy was never, ever leave the bombers, never. Regardless of what was happening around them, they were never to leave. And when the enemy attacked, they were to stay the course. They were to defend the charge. The result of their devotion to these bombers was that only 25 out of hundreds of bombers they protected during the war were lost. And their stellar reputation really became legend. If you flew a bomber, you wanted a red tail with you. You wanted the red tails with you. And on the movie screen, the Tuskegee Airmen would gather together around each other on the airstrip in a foreign land, and they would shout their motto. And their motto was, quote, the last plane, the last bullet, the last man, the last minute we fight. They were celebrated, not just because they were excellent pilots, which they were, but because they never wavered from their duty. They were steadfast. They never left their charge. They always guarded that which they were supposed to. No matter what happened, they stayed faithful to their calling. No matter if there was another enemy airplane that would come to try to take out the bombers, they wouldn't give chase for their own glory. No, they stood fast, and they were faithful to what they were to do. That steadfastness perhaps is a characteristic of these two here, these 120 new, new followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we saw in the beginning of this chapter, they were encouraged greatly by Jesus who gave them many signs, many signs over 40 days, over hundreds of them, gave them many signs of his resurrection. They were encouraged by the commission that he was going to give. They were encouraged by the fact that the Lord Jesus was going to send the Spirit of God to empower them for ministry. And they were told to wait, to wait for the Holy Spirit to come. Even as Jesus had ascended into heaven, they were to wait for the Spirit of God to come. And the 120 faithful followers of the Lord Jesus were obedient. 
They were steadfast. And as we see, as we go through the book of Acts, we will see them give their lives for the sake of the Savior. We find them here in verse 12, gathered together their faithfulness in gathering together and waiting for the Spirit of God. And then we see, we'll see their decision to follow the Lord, to follow the Word of God, and the replacement of Judas. We begin here in verse 12, and we examine their faithfulness, their faithfulness and their steadfastness of the disciples, not to be dissuaded, not to be discouraged, or not to be distracted by other issues. Here in verse 12, it says, They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. We see their faithfulness as followers of the Lord Jesus by looking at their place that they came from, the people, and their unity in prayer. The place where they came from here, they came from a place in Mount Olivet, otherwise known for many of you as the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is really more of a hill. But it towered about 400 feet above the Kidron Valley to the east of Jerusalem. And above the Kidron Valley, Jerusalem on the other side was up about 200 feet. It was a valley that would dip down on the eastern side from which they had to walk down. And on the mountain's backside of Mount Olives, there was Bethany where the Lord had just ascended. And so they climbed through. They walked from this, from this mount, Mount of Olives, over through the valley and into Jerusalem. And it says that they traveled a Sabbath day's journey. A Sabbath day's journey. Now, a Sabbath day's journey, just so you understand, was the maximum distance that was allowable by rabbinic law for them to travel. Under the Sabbath, they would only be able to travel a Sabbath day's journey, and that was fixed at 2,000 cubits. A cubit is the length from your elbow to the tip of your middle finger, somewhere between 17 and a half to 20 inches, depending on how long your arm is. And so when you extrapolate that out in the ancient Near East, it ended up to be about, seven, about a, a half a mile to three quarters of a mile. And the reason why the rabbis dictated that you could only travel this far out came because of a tradition. Back in the time when, when Israel had exited out of Egypt, they were delivered from the Egyptians. They crossed over the Red Sea, and God told them to go into the Promised Land. And they disobeyed God, and part of their penalty was that they would wander in the wilderness for 40 years. When they wandered in the wilderness, God gave them a tabernacle. You'll find the details of the building of the tabernacle at the latter half of the book of Exodus. And when they settled, they would go during the day, they would travel during the day, and they would settle and pitch their tents at night. The tabernacle would be in the center, and they would have, of course, 12 tribes. Each of the 12 tribes would be three on every side, north, south, east, and west. And the distance between the, the tabernacle to the farthest tent that would be set up was roughly 2,000 cubits. Even though the Bible doesn't state that or whatnot, that was by tradition. And so they figured that if a person were to travel on the Sabbath from their tent to go worship at the tabernacle, that was as far as you were allowed to travel. Otherwise, it would be considered work. I remember when I was in Israel, you would see these poles. We'd look at these poles along the road in um, Jerusalem, and they would have these wires that would be, and we asked the guy, well, what are those wires? What are these poles for? And they would be because these poles were at certain distances, at certain distances apart, and you would count the number of poles that you'd travel so that you wouldn't walk too far and thus sin against God by working, by walking too far. 
Well, that was by tradition, and that's where this whole thing comes, where it was a Sabbath day's journey. You were allowed to travel a certain distance on the Sabbath without it being considered work. So here these these, these followers of Jesus came from the Mount of Olives. They had just seen Jesus ascend into heaven. They crossed over the Kidron Valley into Jerusalem, a Sabbath day walk into an upper room. Now, most homes, most homes in Jerusalem had upper rooms. And you remember the Last Supper was in an upper room. This could have been that same room. But this was an exceptionally large upper room because it was able to accommodate 120 individuals. Possibly, again, this is where the Lord celebrated the Last Supper. But here were those who came. Out of the 120 people that's mentioned in verse 15, there were some who were named here. They are the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, the apostles of Christ, of which there are 11 now. It says, Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. Now, knowing these individuals is important. These are a list of 11 of the, of the disciples, or 11 of the apostles. These are important. It's important, it's interesting to note, just as a sidebar, that one of the translators early on of the Bible into English was William Tyndale. He translated it in the 1500s. And, of course, the church was against him translating the Bible into English. But one of the motivations for him to do so was that his survey of the English clergy at that time revealed that those who were English clergymen didn't even know who the twelve were. Barely they could name four or five of the apostles. So that really motivated him that people had to have the Scripture in their own language even though because he did so, he was exiled, impoverished, persecuted, and in 1536, he was strangled and burned at the stake. But he wanted the people to know the Word of God in their own language. And he wanted to, knowing that a number of the clergy couldn't even name the apostles. Now here we see there's a list. There's a list of 11 apostles. Now there are four lists of these 11 or 12 in the Scriptures. In the New Testament, there are four lists, one in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and here also in Acts. Acts is the only one that has 11 because Judas has died. He has committed suicide. And in these three lists, we see there's something unique about these three lists. All these three lists, whether it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, or Acts, are the lists of 12. Each of these 12, there are three groups there are three groups, three groups of four apostles each, all right? So in each of these three groups of four apostles each, the name that is listed first in every group of four is always the same. The first four, the name of Peter always appears first, Peter, James, Andrew, John. The second list, at the top of the list in each of the listings, it is always Philip. And the last list is that of James, son of Alphaeus, okay? And in each of these lists, each of the first names of the group of four is always the same, and they are always in descending order in relationship to their closeness towards the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We know the most about Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They were very close to the Lord Jesus. They were the ones who were following him and had the questions such that they would be there in Mount Transfiguration, and they would be the closest to the Lord Jesus. And the second group of four, always led by Philip. And we would find there's more information, but not as much as the first four, and so on and so forth. And these were the 12 that came, here listing 11, I should say. Along with them, the scripture tells us that it is Mary who was uh, the mother of Jesus and his brother. There were a number of women. Mary, the mother of Jesus, likely Mary Magdalene, probably some others. The scriptures don't tell us exactly whom. But the Bible does tell us who his brothers were. Here, his brothers were accompanying him, technically his half-brothers. Mark 6, 3 tells us their names. He had four half-brothers, James, Joses, Judas, and Simon. James was the author of the book of James, and Judas, which was a common name back then, a common name, he later wrote the book of Jude. Okay, so he had four half-brothers. He had Mary, his mother, Mary Magdalene. A number of people came, and this is what they did. Verse 14, These all with one mind, along with 120, were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women. That's what they were doing. They were involved in prayer with one mind, their unity of like-mindedness in prayer, that they were coming to God in prayer. They had unity, and they devoted themselves to prayer. And the importance of unity within the body cannot be underscored enough in any church body. In any church body, when the leadership particularly is unified, you will have a unified church. Churches are often divided because the leadership is not united. I read stories of those who are part of boards or churches. Sad to say, many of them are simply drained because the leadership is not unified. And we've been very blessed here. We've been very blessed with a group of leaders here that are very like-minded, although imperfect, and they're not by far what we would consider these as apostles or whatnot, but leadership meetings are not draining. In fact, I look forward to them. We discuss things. We talk about the Word of God, and we challenge one another spiritually, and we pray together, and it is a good time that we have, and you can ask them about that. But the early church was unified in mind, and that was one of their characteristics. They were unified in mind, and they were people who prayed. It was characteristic of the early church. In fact, if you look at chapter 2, verse 42, Chapter 2, verse 42, after the church had added thousands to the church, early church, they were continually, it says, continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, which is communion, and to prayer, to prayer. Day by day, verse 46, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Can you imagine how exciting that must have been? Here they were, all new, new believers within the first number of weeks that they had come to know Christ. And here there was a tremendous unity of mind, a devotion to prayer. This wasn't some sort of thing where Christians said, well, you know what? Oh, once a week is just about enough for me. Or they didn't see that, gosh, I have too much church in my life. Or they didn't say, you know what, a prayer meeting, I think I'll skip that. Otherwise, they'd be skipping every day. 
No, they gathered together with one mind, breaking bread day by day, continuing, taking meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. They didn't look at the fellowship of believers as something that was undesirable or too much of or whatnot. No, no, no. They didn't look at that at all. The believers here, they loved to be together. They loved to gather to pray. They loved to pray together with others. And that ought to be the desire of our heart as well. That ought to be the desire of our heart as a church. To gather to pray together as 1 Thessalonians tells us. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, it tells us that prayer is to be without ceasing. As if we are breathing, we are talking with God in our heart. But not only that, as a church body to pray with one another, that's not something to be avoided. It's not something at all to be avoided. When I was a teenager, they would cancel youth meetings one night a month because they would have prayer meeting. They would have prayer meeting once a night. Everything would be canceled on that night so that believers could gather together to pray. And I loved those opportunities. I loved those opportunities because I would sit and most of these folks who were much older than I was and I would learn to pray and I would love to listen to pray and I would love to go because we were talking with God together. What a wonderful thing. And I'll tell you what, I didn't understand a lot of the things that we're saying because they were praying often in another language because I uh, attended a bicultural church. When I was in Texas in seminary, there was, uh, it was a busy time. It was a busy time that I was studying and the church was somewhat far away, but there was one ministry I chose to be a part of, and that was the ministry of their weekly prayer meetings. Because when we pray, it is effectual, and God moves, and we have the privilege of praying. We have the privilege of being a part of what God is doing to touch someone's life, and they don't even know it, and to watch the hand of God move, and to change, and to conform, and to cause to grow, and to realize, wow, what a privilege it is to have a part in that person's life, to pray, to ask of God, to beg of God on behalf of someone else. What a privilege it is. And here these believers are, 120 of them, faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ with one mind casting their cares upon Him and asking of God whatever was on their heart. They were faithful in waiting faithful in prayer, faithful in gathering together and not saying, you know what, I'm just tired of this. It's already been three days. Where's the Holy Spirit? I think I'm going to take a break. Mm -mm. They were part of fulfilling God's plan. And we see that fulfillment in verse 15. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, gathering of about 120 persons who were there together. And he said, brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled. Relationship, what he's speaking of here is verse, what he's about to quote in verse 20. Which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Now Peter, he stood up, the recognized leader of the group, the one who spoke up, and he needed, he referred them in their confidence in Scripture to verse 20 and verse 16, it says it makes it very clear, very clear statement about the inspiration of the, of the Scriptures. Here he talks about the inspiration of the Scriptures, verse 16, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. In other words, the Bible was written 
by the Holy Spirit through the agency of people. The Holy Spirit spoke through people. It reminds us of 2 Peter 1.21 where it says that men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. They wrote the scripture. They were moved by the Spirit. It wasn't by human inspiration. Somebody who woke up one day and said, you know what, I've got this great idea. I'm going to write the book of Acts. It wasn't like that. The Holy Spirit worked in and through people to write the scriptures. He used their personalities. He used their writing styles. He used their hands to write the very word of God from God himself. It was this statement to the 120 that gave them confidence. Because I'm sure many of them were wondering. Now we have 11. Now how does Judas fit into all of this? Such a tragedy. Perhaps they were wondering what was going to happen. Or maybe they didn't recognize how Judas and Jesus, did Jesus somehow choose the wrong guy? Or what was it? Is this part of the plan of God? Now Judas Iscariot was probably one of the most infamous people in the Bible. He was not the only person named Judas, as you see there in that listing. Among the 12 disciples, there was another Judas in that 12. His name was Judas, the son of James. And by the way, if you're trying to memorize the names of all of the apostles, Judas, this other Judas, the son of James, has a couple of other nicknames. He has a couple other nicknames in the Bible. He's also called Thaddeus. He's also called Labaius. Those were kind of nicknames. And they sort of, they sort of, uh, they're, they're the same individual. They called him by that. It's Judas, son of James. The Judas, that is, Iscariot, always has the, the little clause where it says Iscariot to him. And Judas wasn't a bad name. As you notice, even one of Jesus' half-brothers was named Judas. Uh, he wrote the book of Jude, as I mentioned. And Judas, the name itself means Jehovah leads. But Judas Iscariot, he was a, a different type of a fellow. Iscariot comes from the Hebrew term ish, meaning man, and the other part of the word, karioth, which likely was the name of the town in which he was from, likely karioth Hezron, which would have been south of Judea, okay, south of Judea. And that would have made him, that's significant, because that would have made Judas the only one who was not from Galilee. You know, when you look at the geography of Israel, you have Galilee, and you have Samaria, then you have Judea, and you have south of Judea. Here is where Judas came from. The other 12 would have been perhaps co-workers, friends. They may have seen one another in the area of Galilee. They would have had the same accent. They would have been all of the same cut of the same cloth. In other words, if you say to somebody, you're out in the middle of nowhere, oh, you're from the, you're from the Northwest, you're from Seattle, and, and, and you're, you're, you, know, you have something in common. Oh, do you know this school? Do you know where, you, where did you graduate from? And where did you grow up at? And you say, oh, I grew up here in Seattle. And you have a lot in common. You know what the culture is like if you've lived here in the Pacific Northwest. And then there's one guy who comes along, and he's from Iowa. And you wonder, what's in Iowa? You know, there's some farmland, and he's from Lumla Town. You don't know where he's from. But nice folks in Iowa, friendly and all of that. And, okay, why don't you come on in? And that worked to his advantage, perhaps. It worked to his advantage as the outsider because he was the only one that was not from the group. And others, because they probably didn't know a lot about his background, 
Well, he could just hang around and he could live a life of hypocrisy. He could live a life in a position of prominence, which Judas took a position of prominence among the twelve as the treasurer. It was a trusted role. It was a respected role that Judas was the treasurer. Now, when we look back at John chapter 12, we see what Judas was like. We see what Judas is like in John chapter 12. And in John chapter 12, there is a passage there in verses 4 through 6, and the context of John chapter 12 is that he's having a meal with Jesus. He's having a meal with Martha and Mary and Lazarus, and in that context, what happens? Well, this was not long after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And they were having a meal. Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And Mary comes in. Mary comes in, and she anoints Jesus with oil, or expensive perfume, I should say. And then who speaks up? Judas. Judas protested, John chapter 12, verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Sounds pious. Sounds very pious. After all, 300 denarii, a denarii was one day's wage for a Roman soldier or for a typical laborer. That's one day's wage. So in other words, 300 days, that's almost a year. Include holidays, it's pretty much a year. Why is a year's salary being poured out upon Jesus in this expensive perfume? We could have sold it and given it to the poor. But it says in verse 6, now he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor. See, it was a smokescreen. But because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. He used to pilfer what was put into it. You see, in his mind's eye, probably, I'm guessing that he was thinking of all that money. Whole year's wages. It could have been sold and then given and entrusted, quote-unquote, to the treasure of which he would pilfer. After three years of following Jesus, do you know what was happening near this time? What was happening near this time was that Jesus began to talk about his impending death. He was going to talk about leaving them. He was going to talk about all of these things. And you imagine in your mind's eye the disciples. It became kind of a confused situation for them because here they thought, here is the Messiah. He's going to overthrow Rome. He's going to set up a physical kingdom. He's going to be reign over all. And look at him. He feeds 5,000 people. He heals the sick. He casts out the demons. He does. He pays his taxes. Whoa, a fish, man. Free food, free taxes, free everything. This looks great. And here Jesus was talking about leaving them, about dying, about whatever it was. And here they've given up all of their life to follow him. And near the end of his life, it's not surprising, Judas began to calculate, calculate what was going to be his take. If he wasn't going to be treasurer of the new kingdom to come, oh no, you could imagine. Maybe it caused him to be bitter or resentful or an angry man who decided, you know what, maybe it's time to cash out and bail out. So the Bible tells us that immediately after that, in Matthew 26, 14, Then one of the twelve named Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out thirty pieces of silver to him. 
And from then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. See, Judas was a lover of money. When he saw that a year's worth of perfume had just been, in his mind's eye, squandered, began to think, my goodness, I'm not going to get anything out of this deal. I'm going to sell out the Lord. And from a worldly viewpoint, Eugene Peterson writes something interesting. He says, among the apostles, the one absolutely stunning, from a worldly viewpoint, the one absolutely stunning success was Judas. The one thoroughly groveling failure was Peter. Judas was a success in a way that most impresses us. He was successful both financially and politically. He cleverly arranged to control the money of the apostolic band. He skillfully manipulated the political forces of the day to accomplish his goal. Peter was a failure in ways we'd most dread. He was impotent in a crisis and socially inept. At the arrest of Jesus, he collapsed, a hapless, blundering coward. In the most critical situation of his life with Jesus, the confession on the road to Caesarea Philippi and the vision on the Mount Transfiguration, he said the most embarrassingly inappropriate things. He was not the companion we would want with us in the time of danger. And he was not the kind of person we would feel comfortable with at a social occasion. Time, of course, has reversed our judgment of these two men, he writes. Judas is now a byword for betrayal, and Peter is one of the most honored names in church and the world. Judas is a villain. Peter is a saint. Yet the world continues to chase after the successes of Judas. Financial wealth, political power, and it defends itself against the failures of Peter, impotence and ineptness. And his betrayal of Christ, well, Judas Iscariot was the most despised person. He was the most despised person. In fact, in every single list of the four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and the end, uh, the, the last one in Acts, his name is always last in the list. His name is always last, and there's sometimes even a notation that says, a traitor. Not only was he a traitor, he was an example of what not to be, of what not to be. He becomes a profile of a man who really has great privilege, following Jesus, being close to him, watching what he has done, hearing from Jesus himself of the teaching that he gave, and being a witness to all that he offered. But his own desire for money, for power, for prestige, because of his concern for material things, his love of the world, he hardened his heart and he sold out the Savior for 30 pieces of silver. And I guess the question should it be, how many, how many would do that? How many would do that, not even for 30 pieces of silver, but to do that for much less, to sell out the Savior, to say, you know what? I want, the things that I want would be the same things that Judas wanted. Finances, power, prestige, the material things that the world has to offer. Those were the things that caused him to sell out and bail out. And he became a hated man, Judas did. One author writes or notes, hatred for Judas was so deep, 
in the years following the closing of the New Testament that several incredible legends about him evolved that describe bizarre occurrences, characterizing Judas as ugly, evil, and totally repugnant. One, in the apocryphal Coptic narrative, said that Judas, having betrayed Christ, was infested with maggots. Consequently, his body became so bloated that on one occasion, he was trying to ride on a cart through a gate, and being too large to fit through the gate, he hit the gate, his body exploded, and maggots spewed all over the wall. Now, that is a fictional story, but it just shows the level of contempt that Judas had in the early centuries. It was Judas who betrayed Jesus. It was Judas who also was overcome by his guilt and remorse. We look in Matthew chapter 27, the gospel of Matthew chapter 27. It talks about Judas and what happened afterwards. In Matthew chapter 27, after Judas had realized what he had done, it says in verse 3 there, Judas, verse 3, then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed, and he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest took the pieces of silver and said, it is not lawful, not lawful to put them into the temple treasury, since it is the price of blood. And they conferred together with the money, bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, the field has been called the field of blood to this day. That which is spoken through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of one whose Price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Although Judas himself didn't buy the field, it's attributed to him because of the money that he had been given, blood money. Blood money, and they turned and bought this field. The field is located outside of Jerusalem. It's located outside the Jerusalem near the Valley of Hinnom, which the soil is good to make pottery, and that's why they call it the potter's field. And Judas was remorseful, but not repentant. There's no indication that he truly repented. In other words, he felt bad, obviously, about what he had done. He threw the blood money back at them. But instead of trying to make the best of what had been a sinful decision, he chose once again to choose a selfish route, and he chose to hang himself, kill himself. And here we wonder why. Why is it that Perhaps all of these gory details about his intestines are located here in the book of Acts. Well, perhaps because to the Jewish mind, uh, suicide was considered reprehensible. But to those who are Gentiles, among whom I'm sure there were readers of the book of Acts, suicide was morally neutral. And to present, perhaps Luke presented that in order to highlight the fact of his judgment that he was not going to receive some sort of nice burial or he was not going to be respected in any manner. No, 
He includes perhaps the details. And we don't know what happened. We know perhaps it was over a, a precipice or a cliff that he was hanged. We don't know if the rope broke or maybe the tree limb broke or whatever it was. But the scene that is painted here is one of disgust and that of shame. That of shame and the death of one who betrayed the Lord Jesus. And Peter's reminder to this fledgling group who may have wondered about the absence of Judas, what was to take place now? What was going to happen now that there are only 11 apostles? And he quotes Psalm 69 and 109.8. That is to say that this was a fulfillment. This was a fulfillment of the Word of God. This is to say that even the worst injustice in the history of the world, the betrayal The unjust crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross was a part of God's sovereign plan. That all of this is part of the plan of God. Even Judas was handpicked by Jesus to be one of the twelve. There was no miscalculation. There was no mistake. All of this was a part of the plan of God, that Judas was going to do what he was going to do. And so we look at two. Maybe the circumstances of your own life. Maybe the circumstances of your family or your job. How difficult it may be. We wonder, is this really a part of God's plan? And the answer is yes. It is part of God's purposes that we may not see at the time. We may not understand. We may not know how this will all play out. But as the word of God has declared, they were to continue in their faithfulness and their steadfastness to what God had called them to. And they were going to appoint a replacement for Judas. Therefore, Peter says, it is necessary that of the men who accompanied us all this time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness of his resurrection. And so he puts forth here, the proposition that they were supposed to find a replacement, appoint a replacement, appoint a replacement for Judas. And he points out there are four particular qualifications. Number one, that they were to be one of the men. They weren't to be one of the men. Secondly, that they were to be accompanied, having accompanied them through the ministry of the Lord Jesus. From the baptism to the ascension, that's number two. He was to be uh, bap- uh, accompanied them. Thirdly, he was to be a witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. He couldn't have uh, accompanied, and right after the Lord Jesus was crucified, he he died. That would have disqualified him. He had to be in a witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And fourthly, from their prayer in verse 24, the apostle who was to fulfill his vacancy, that left by Judas, was to be chosen by God, was to be chosen by God who knows the hearts of all men. To be one of the twelve, these were the requirements. One of the twelve, these were the requirements, and they selected two. They selected two. These two, Joseph and Matthias, we really know nothing of them other than the fact that Matthias' name, Matthias' name means chosen of God, I believe, or blessing of God or gift of God, I should say. But we don't know much about these two. This is the only reference of these two in the Scriptures. But this wasn't some sort of mistake, nor was it that, oh, perhaps it's the Apostle Paul, you see, who's supposed to be the 12th Apostle. You see, the Scriptures tell us that 
in the resurrection, there will be those, the 12, who will sit, Matthew 19, 28, who will sit on his glorious throne. They they will sit with him upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. We see also in the book of Revelation that there are going to be gates, and on those gates there's 12 of them, each of them for the tribes, and each of them, I think that that will be, well, each of them represented of the 12 tribes, not of the 12 apostles. I'm sorry about that. And they drew lots to decide between the two, between Matthias and between Matthias and Joseph. This was to be the last time. As you notice here, they cast lots. They cast lots. That was a, that was a typical way of dis- discerning the Lord's will. But this is the very last time, the very last time that they made a decision by this means. After this, the Holy Spirit would descend upon them and the closing of the canon in which we have the word of God to discern the Lord's will would be given to us. And Matthias was chosen. As I mentioned, his name means gift of God, gift of God. He was a gift to the church. And in church tradition, he went on to become a witness for Christ, and his witness would cost him his life. He would be stoned. He would be beheaded as a martyr of the faith, according to the tradition of the church. We see their selection of leaders, not as some haphazard way, not some sort of way that was just by randomness. It was very careful. It was intentional. It was done with criterion. It was after prayer. It was done by looking at a man's qualifications. And it was recognized that it is God who chooses leaders. It is God who chooses leaders. As Daniel 4.17 tells us, that the Most High is ruler over the realms of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. It is God who appoints leaders. It is God who bestows it on whomever he wishes because he is ruler over all of mankind. That's very practical. In today's day, we, we're in an election cycle, and everybody, there are going to be millions of people watching. Super Tuesday is just around the corner, and they're going to wonder who's still in the race, and many people are worried about this or that. God will raise up or put down whomever leader that he so desires. God is the one who is ruler over the realm of mankind, it says in the Scriptures, And he sets over it the lowliest of men. And in the book of Proverbs, it says that the hearts of kings are like channels of water. He directs them wherever he so chooses. And it is God who is sovereign over our leaders as well. So, in this particular text today, what do we see? We see that we can learn to be steadfast and faithful. Steadfast and faithful like these followers of Christ. Faithful to our call, just as the red tails were. They were told to wait for the Spirit of God, and they did. They were told to commit themselves and to be faithful, and they gathered together to wait and prayed with unity of mind and heart to God. And even as we wait for the coming Savior, we are to be of like-minded faith and a desire to call upon God and faithfulness to be steadfast as we wait for Jesus to come. Secondly, We can remember that the purposes of God will be accomplished. That the purposes of God will be accomplished. Nothing will thwart the purposes of God. No matter what tragedy or calamity or difficulty may come, even as we saw in the severe, severe betrayal by by Judas upon Jesus, we can trust 
that the plan of God, nothing will derail it. Thirdly, we can remember that it is God who establishes leaders. It is God who establishes leaders. It is not by chance, not by money, not by power, but it is by the hand of God. So we can trust in the hand of God, in His wisdom and His sovereignty, and it is not dependent upon us and manipulation or any sort of thing like that. We can learn to be steadfast and to trust in the hand of God and the wisdom of God and His sovereign grace. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your grace. And Father, we pray that you would help us, Lord, as we reflect even on this text, the betrayal of a traitor such as Judas, that we might not love the things that he loved, that we might be faithful to you like the apostles and the 120, that we might be steadfast and that we might look always to you, trusting that you are the one who rises up, who raises up and who puts down leaders by your hand. And may you, O Father, help us to be steadfast and faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.